I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Today I want to look at how God uses people to fulfill His purposes in history and how God is also using, his, using people right now. And I want to start that by reading two passages to you. One's from Matthew chapter 1, the other from Luke chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we read the Lord's message to a man named Joseph. What kind of a man was Joseph? Working man, carpenter, regular guy. Put his, uh, if they wore pants back in those days, he put his pants on one leg at a time, <laughs> just like you and I. Regular person. Regular person. Matthew 1 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged or engaged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, and that's in conjugal love, she was to be found pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, turn forward a few pages, probably for you, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we'll take our reading from verses 26 to 33. This was the angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph. And now the angel of the Lord is going to speak to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's the mother of John the Baptist. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. 
And she who was able, and she who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And I'll point out in verse 37 that the authorized version says, For with God nothing shall be impossible. <laughs> Which is, I think is a much better reading for verse 37. And we trust the Lord to add his blessing to the reading of his holy word and that the Holy Spirit will help us to get something from this message by God's grace and his help. The incarnation of Christ. God uses people to accomplish his purposes or his plans in the world. The incarnation of Christ required the help or the use of people. And we can see this from the Garden of Eden forward. God uses people to carry out his will. Now, generally, as a general principle, God makes his will very clear to us. That great writer from years gone by, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, he said, who was no lover of God or Scripture, he said, it's not the part of the Bible that I don't understand that bugs me. It's the part that I do understand <laughs> that bothers me. In general, God makes his word and his will very clear to us. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God made man, he made a woman, and he told Adam and Eve to work the garden and to keep the garden. From the very beginning of creation, God gives people work to do, jobs to do. And God gave Adam a job to do. That was God's will for Adam and his will for Eve. They were created to serve, created to labor for the Lord. And here's something that you and I need to keep in our minds, is that work is not bad. Right? We think work is bad because we get tired of working. But work is good. Is good. You know what's fascinating about it? We all live here in Michigan, don't we? The answer is yes. <laughs> we all live right here in the locale. Is that years ago, maybe 100 years ago, hunting was very, very hard work. Market hunting was very hard work. Lots of effort. But now hunting has changed into recreation. It's a recreational sport. And, and listen, my friends, those of you who do not hunt or don't fish, you don't know how much work you're missing out on. It's a lot of work. We pursue work as our hobbies. There are brothers here in the church who, who build stuff. Who they, they make stuff. The Tom Billings made this pulpit years ago. But there are guys in the church who build stuff with wood or crafts, and, and that's work. It's work. It's effort. But it's recreation. We, work, is, work is good, and God has given us work to do. Work is not a curse. Now, as you move through the Scriptures... As you move forward, you see over and over that God uses people to do His purposes to achieve His plans in the world in which we live. And the people that God uses, all of them, all of them are people whose lives are messy, whose lives are a little bit knocked off center by the way things are. Sometimes in God's purposes, He chooses to use a woman. Other times, He chooses to use a man. Or in the case of Samuel and David, he uses a young person to do his will in the world. Remember, David was a young man who knocked down Goliath and won a great victory for the nation. And David, as a young man, went forward towards Goliath, not in his own strength or in his own wisdom, but he says, in the name of the Lord God, I come to you and knock down the giant. God is a God who 
is with his people. He uses his people to achieve his purposes in the world. In every case, God uses people. If you look through Scripture, you'll see that God's purposes or plans are, are stated sometimes, but they're not always fully known to us. There is a thing called the secret will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. You see, we are called to obey what God has made clear, and then we are called to trust His character and to trust in Him when things are not as clear as we wish they were. Haven't you experienced that? That you feel like God wants you to do something or you're following God's word and you know this is what God wants you to do, but you don't really know if it's going to work out the right way? You don't know if it's really going to pan out? You, don't, you wish you had more information? Now, there are different kinds of people in the world. There are detail-oriented people and then there are Terry's. I don't need a lot of details. I don't, I don't need to know all the facts. I'm the kind of guy who would plan a vacation and just show up at places. But I'm married to a girl who's not that way. Security is very important, right? A plan, times, appointments. (laughs) An adequate amount of money is very important too. When when we were when Valerie, she was pregnant with Lauren, our oldest daughter, in 1999. We uh, we decided to go. We had a day off from my job, and we decided to go across the mountain from West Virginia. Did you know West Virginia is the biggest state in the union? Do you guys know that? If you flatten it out. <laughs> we went across the mountains in, of West Virginia into Virginia. We went to Monticello, or Monticello, or Thomas Jefferson's home. I'd been there lots of times when I was a kid. We lived not far from there when I was young. And I took Valerie over there. We went over there, and we paid the fee to get in, and we walked around the place. And, and then we, we didn't have much money. And that day, we, we didn't really have hardly any money because I, we didn't think about how, buying gas to get home when we got over there. You know how hard it, you, do you know how hard it, and that was back before we didn't have a credit card back then and we didn't have a cell phone and so we found ourselves driving around to different gas stations in Montes- in Charlottesburg Charlottesville Virginia uh, trying to find a gas station that would take a personal check from out of state <laughs> that may or may not have been good we won't talk about that <laughs> we only needed ten bucks I'm begging people please take a ten dollar check man you know just that was back when you could buy gas for $10. Wow, that's a, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Clear. We want more information, but God doesn't always make things clear to us. And that's where we have to engage faith. We have to learn to trust God. I want you to listen to Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. Listen to what God says here. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Me. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish. This is, this is a section of this verse people leave off all the time but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's purposes will be fulfilled. 
He sends forth his word. He sends forth the, his, this, this means his word of decree. What he wants to happen. It will accomplish the things that I want. It will achieve it. Say, so, well, that infers that God has a plan. And that God works out his plans according to his desire in the world. Now, God's, cans can, God's plans cannot be thwarted. This is something that sometimes people trip over, but it's something that's very true. The fulfillment of God's plan does not mean that our lives are always going to be filled with sunshine and Cadillacs, but God's plan for our individual lives often requires that we struggle, and sometimes it feels like those struggles are all at once. Have you experienced that, where it seems like everything in your life is going sideways, going left, going right, nothing's going right? I mean, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been a tither for a long time, giving regular of my offerings to the Lord. I've been faithful going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do, going out witnessing and passing out tracts and, you know, being, you know, just being wonderful. <laughs> and still lose my job, get laid off. My old son, my old son Mitchell is here, and just... Three weeks before he was born, they laid off everybody at the factory that I worked at from 15 years seniority down. They laid everybody off. I was one of those guys. Laid off just before he was born. And I didn't understand what is the Lord doing. Sometimes these struggles all seem to come at once, but these struggles are what cause us to exercise our faith, to build up those faith muscles, you might say. We cannot learn to trust God with our lives until we must trust God with our lives. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's our dear brother Moses is mentioned. In verses 24 to 29. And we see in that reading that Moses' life moved from faith to faith, from greater and great, from one from greater to greater demonstrations of faith. The longer he lived, his trust in the Lord just got bigger. And what's striking is in Hebrews eleven twenty nine. It says that Moses led the people into the Red Sea. It's a striking reading. It's all Moses, 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 by faith, Moses, by faith, Moses, by faith, Moses. Then verse 29, by faith they entered the Red Sea. Remember the Red Sea miracle? God parted the waters. Now that had to be a mind-blowing experience, don't you know? To see that sea, whoosh. Think about it, standing at Lake Huron. Standing right there where the, strait, the Straits of Mackinac I don't know how deep that water is, but it looks pretty deep to me. Can you imagine standing there and seeing an old, white-haired dude walk up there, lift up his arms, and see the whole thing roll back? What, what a mind-blower. That water piled up. It became, you know, as a kid, you're trying to figure these things out. Like jello? Is that what it was like? Like jello beside? Were the fish swimming up and looking at the people? I mean, what's happening here? And see this, see the water, just seeing it open would have been a trip. But then Moses takes a step out into that and walks through it. And of course, all the people, they, even Pharaoh, they viewed Moses as a god. They're like, oh, of course Moses can do that. But that way was open for everybody. 
And they had to walk through that by faith, trusting in God. By faith, they went through. It's my own opinion that Moses' example of faith is what led them into the Red Sea. And I want you to keep this in your mind, my friends, is that as you live your life of faith in front of the people you love and care about, your faith affects them too. And because they've watched you put your trust in God, they see where to put their confidence. In God. In God. That's what parents do. As a kid watching my parents trust God. So Valerie and I are trying to do as parents, trying to trust God imperfectly every time, but trying to put our faith in Him. Now when God decides to bring Jesus into the world, He chooses to use people. And He chooses a girl. And I want all you girls and women to know that being a girl is a good thing. Being a girl is special. Women have played a prominent role in Scripture. Over and over, God has used women to carry out some of His greatest acts in history. Praise God for women. Amen? Women are such a blessing to the Christian church. I mean, none of us would be here without women. Amen? <laughs> women are so such special creatures. Now I want to say this while we're talking about it. If you were born a girl, that means that God wants you to serve him as a girl. If you were born a a boy, the same, to serve God as a boy. See, what if I feel all out of whack on the inside? What if I feel like I got the wrong body and the wrong parts? What if I feel like that's, what if I feel that way? You see, God has made it so obvious That seconds after a kid is born, in 99.9% of the cases, he's made it so obvious of your gender what it is, people know within seconds. We've had five children, Valerie and I. Actually, Valerie had five children. Five times I watched a baby come into the world, and within seconds, I don't need the doctor to say, it's a, I can see. It's a girl, it's a boy. And that's what, and God has, has made it so easily, easy to know. Therefore, for all my children, whatever sexual gender, or, you know, the world's crazy about this gender business, biological gender, if you were born with boy parts, you're a boy, God wants you to serve him as a boy. If you're born with girl parts, God wants you to live and serve him as a girl. And you may be tempted to want to, to, you may be tempted, you may be jealous of, of some of the things that go along with that, of the genders or different roles they play. You may be jealous or envious of it. But you have to be content with how God has made you and serve Him as He has made you. It's not always easy to do. It's not always easy to do. I'm tempted to crack a joke here, but I'm not sure if I should or not. Jim Mills is going, no, no. <laughs> No. <laughs> Women are wonderful creatures. And when God decided to send forth the Savior of the world, he entrusted him to a girl. One preacher from Mississippi told me that Mary's womb was the oven that God used to bring forth the satisfying bread of life. To a girl, God gave his son, his only unique 
son. And this girl was a virgin girl. And being a virgin is also good. Being a virgin as a boy is good. Being a virgin as a girl is good. Don't let the people in your life belittle that. If you're here this morning and you're not a virgin, don't beat yourself up about it. Repent and move forward in purity. This girl, Mary, she was living her life, trying to be what she needed to be for the Lord. She was living her life, looking forward to beginning a new life with a man named Joseph, when all of a sudden, God reached into her life and blessed her and said, I'm going to use you to bring forth the Savior. He sent an angel to tell her, I want you to serve me. I would not be surprised if many of you have not had this same kind of experience where God, in some direct way, made it clear to you that you should serve him in some way. You guys ever heard of a man named Charles Stanley? Charles Stanley, in touch, pastor of First Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia, for all these years. Charles Stanley's from Danville, Virginia. And Charles Stanley was, uh, was called to preach, but he didn't want to be a preacher, like so many of us who get called to preach. We don't really want to do it. And Charles Stanley, he was outside his house, and he looked up at the stars, and he said, Lord, if you're really sure you want me to be a pastor, let a star fall from heaven. Guess what happened? Yeah, star fell. And Charles Stanley, because he was born and raised a Baptist, he knew miracles don't happen twice in a row. So he said, Lord, if, you're really, if, that's, really what you mean, if that's really what you want me to do, let another star fall. And you know what happened? He looked up at heaven. <laughs> a second star fell from heaven. God making it clear to his servant what he wants you to do. There's this little idea in Scripture, I think, it's called little confirmations. What should I do? What should I do? God gives us confirmations. God came to Mary and he said, I want you to serve me. This is the way God works. It's always God who initiates these things. He comes. He's calling his people. God is reaching his fingers into our lives and saying, I want you to do this for me. God initiates his relationships with us every time, even in salvation. He must do it. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Paul describes here what man is in his unregenerate or unsaved state compared to his saved condition. Listen to Romans 8, verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Psalms 14, verses 2 and 3 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And what does God find? He finds that all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. You see, in our natural condition, we are at odds with God. We cannot be have fellowship with Him but in our natural condition. It takes God intervening in our lives. Jesus describes this in John chapter 5 where He talks about the living and the dead. He says, the, the dead shall hear my voice. He says, the hour now is when the dead shall hear my voice and live and follow me. You see, my friends, without Christ, you're dead to God. I mean, guys, don't, don't, uh, this is a dumb question. If you've ever seen the film The Godfather, you might know this scene where it might, might, be, it might be the second Godfather, I'm not sure. Where Fredo 
Michael figures out that his brother Fredo has betrayed him. And he kisses him on the mouth and says, you're dead to me. If you've ever watched Shark Tank, you've seen Mr. Wonderful do the same thing. Declare people, dead to me. I don't want to hear you anymore. You see, before the new birth, you're at a status with God. You're dead to God. You're not his son. You're not his daughter. You're in a status that you can't fix. And so God has to fix it. That's why in John 5, it talks about this spiritual resurrection. You're raised from the dead to faith. You're given new life. In John chapter 3, this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and says, hey, we know you're something special. And Jesus says, hey, unless a man's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says something else. Jesus says, except the man's born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says something else. And Jesus says in John 3, 8, being born again is like the wind, man. You can't see where the wind's coming from. You can't tell where it's going, but you know when it showed up. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit, John 3, 8. God just sweeps into your life. That's why you could be sitting here this morning and you have been to church a hundred times, but you don't give a rip about it. You don't care about it. And then something happens. All of a sudden, the preaching makes more sense to you. You who did not care a thing for God, all of a sudden are interested in God. This is the new birth. It's taking place. It's opening your eyes. It's showing you your true condition. He said, I'm not sure if I believe that all the way, but it's okay. Listen to what the, this is from our church's confession of faith. Listen to what it says. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be born again, that the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel and that its proper evidence appear in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. This church's doctrinal statement says that we believe that the new birth is manifested and made apparent by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. God reaching into your life and causing you to see your true condition. And when you see your true condition, you turn to Jesus. See, my friends, if you could see your true condition without Christ, you would run to him. But you can't. That's why you're not running to him but I pray God will open your eyes to it. See, our relationship with God begins with God. And the new birth or being born from, or being born from above is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3. But the new birth is just the beginning of God's interference in our lives. <laughs> my friend Don Fortner, he said that God knocked me down in my mad rush to hell. He knocked me down. It showed me that I was lost, that I needed him. For Don, that was when he was 16 years old. But God keeps on messing with our lives, doesn't he? He keeps on interfering and redirecting us. Because what God does is he reaches into our lives after the new birth. He does it through the reading of Scripture. He does it through sermons. And he does it through people to lead us forward into his service. And now like Mary and Joseph, we don't always get to pick where and how we serve the Lord. Sometimes it feels like we are picking, but we don't. God is moving. He's arranging things. God moves us and the things in our lives around to achieve his purpose in his world. And a vivid example of that is a man named Jonah in Scripture. Remember, 
God told Jonah to go somewhere to Nineveh and preach. And what did Jonah say? He said, no way, Jose, I ain't going to Nineveh. How come he didn't want to go to Nineveh? Long winters. Lots of snow. (laughs) Close to the Great Lakes. (laughs) Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like Nineveh. He didn't like the Ninevites. He said, I ain't going. He jumped on a boat and headed the opposite direction. And what did God do? Did God just say, okay, Jonah? Nope. We all know the story of how God helped Jonah want to go to Nineveh. (laughs) We all know the story. And I want to say to you this morning that the best thing you can do with yourself is to do what God wants you to do. If you resist God's will, you will suffer needlessly. Psalms 32.9 says this, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Proverbs 19.29, Penalties are prepared for mockers and beatings for the backs of fools. Proverbs 20, verse 30, Blows and wounds scrub away evil, and beatings purge the inmost being. Now, that's an interesting verse, Proverbs 20, verse 30. In the authorized version, it says, the blueness of the wound cleanses away evil. Have you ever had a real bad fall? A real bad fall? And you got a real bad bruise out of it? Well, the next time you came to that situation, were you more careful? What if it was something that happened because you didn't put a handrail on your front porch? Or because you didn't put ice melt under the gutter that goes across your sidewalk? What do you do about that? Well, you fix it. I ain't going to let that happen again. The bigger the wound, the greater the remedy to it. Now, let's go back to Joseph and Mary a second. These two people are good examples of people who are called to a special task by God. They're not given all the answers, but they go forward by faith. There in Luke chapter 1, Mary is called to physically carry a child. And when she's told this by the angel, her response to this is striking. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. She recognizes the lordship of God. She realizes he is her king, her master, her sovereign, and she submits to him. Now the word, the word translated word in verse 38 of Luke chapter 1 is from a Greek word, rhema, which means a word of command. So literally what Mary is saying in Luke 1.38 is, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be unto me according to your command. What we see here as an example is that Mary recognizes her Lord's will and she submits to it. Now don't answer this question, but my friends, is that how you are? Are you submitting to God's will? When you hear it in a sermon, or when you read it in the Bible, do you say, okay, God, I'll do it? Or do you resist, rebel, recuse, and writhe in agony over it? What's your response to knowing what God's will is? Well, you can rebel, you can recuse, you can writhe in agony if you want to. But my friend, I hope that ultimately culminates in submission. You're not going to like everything God tells you to do. But you need to submit to it. Say, okay, Lord. Okay. Whatever you want me to do, 
I'll do my best to do it. Mary sets us a good example. She says, okay, I'll do it. I'm sure that Mary knew this was going to cause her some trouble, but this wonderful girl did what God wanted her to do anyway. May God help us follow her example. The other half of this example is this guy, Joseph. Joseph, because of God's design and plan, he's not able to carry a baby. Instead, he is called to marry a girl who is pregnant. He's called to embrace and help bear the shame of this situation. Now, his decision was not without a struggle. Sometimes we read the Bible and it's just two-dimensional. We think, you know, everybody just did it. With that. We think that people didn't have any feelings about this. Well, these are real people. They had feelings. And Joseph's decision was not without struggle. If you look back at Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, you can see it. That the angel appears to Joseph. He's, in a, he, he's thinking about this. Have you had this happen where you're, you have a problem, you're trying to figure it out, and you go to bed and dream about it? Here's Joseph. He's got this, this problem. Should I marry Mary or not? Should I marry her or not? She says she's going to have a baby. I know it's not my baby. She, what, what's going on here? She says this, and you know, I don't, you know, she seems far fetched to me. He goes to bed, and in a dream, an angel comes and speaks to him. And what does the angel say? The angel come and says, comes and says, This is something from the Lord. Marry the girl. This, is guy, this, this child is going to be great. His name is, you're going to call him Jesus. He's a savior. The angel quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14 to him. Joseph wakes up from his dream and obeys. Interestingly, if you look carefully, the angel, to both Joseph and Mary, the angel cites messianic text from Isaiah. The angel comes and says, this is what is prophesied in Scripture. To Mary, the angel quotes Isaiah 9, 7. To Joseph, the, the angel quotes Isaiah 7, 14. This angelic confirmation comes with Scripture. Now, let me say this to you as a way of warning, because the way the world is. If you go home this afternoon, and you lay down and take a nap, and in your dream an angel appears to you and gives you a message, how are you going to know if you should obey that message or not? Let's, ha- let's have the most extreme example. What if you go home tonight and you today and you have a dream, an angel appears in a dream, and the dream says, I want you to go to work tomorrow and kill the person you hate the most? Is that a message from God? How do you know? <laughs> you had an angel? Because the Bible says not to do that. If it's a message from the Lord, it never contradicts Scripture. Thou shalt do no murder. Exodus chapter 20, right? In the Ten Commandments. You see, there's this regulatory principle. The Scripture guides even the angels and their messages. Never to go contrary to God's Word. Now, this young man, Mary, he doesn't consummate the marriage with Mary for ten months. He denies himself the joy of conjugal love until after Mary gives birth. What we see here is a fantastic picture of Joseph, for the glory of God, giving up his personal rights for God's glory. And that's something that we should also be willing to do, to give up our rights, our demands for God. Now, these two young people are just like you and me, regular people serving the Lord, 
And they face the same stresses that you and I do. And just like us, they're walking forward one step at a time, trying to figure it out, trying to do what God wants them to do as best they can. They're working, they're worrying, they're raising their children, and they're trying to serve the Lord as they go along. And they are successful. But I wonder how many times in their life they thought they were not being successful. Have you ever looked, you ever looked at your life and just said, you know, my life's just been a waste. I don't know what's been happening here. The midlife crisis. You know you can have a midlife crisis at 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. I mean, you, you can get to where you feel like everything you're doing is wrong. Because our perspective is so narrow. You see, Joseph and Mary, like many of us, they didn't live to see the full impact of their service for God. They didn't know that their name's going to be inscribed in Scripture. They didn't know that for centuries, Christian churches are going to talk about them and look at these very small sections of Scripture and lift these two people up as examples. They didn't know that. They didn't know that for hundreds of years this was going to take place. But in the last day, they will see it. In the last day, Joseph and Mary, in the last day, are going to see all the saved of every age gathered into one place and they'll see their grown child, Jesus the boy they guided to manhood seated on the throne. And what a day that will be for them and for us. Can you see it? There's Mary. The last time she saw her son that we know of in Scripture, he was on the cross being crucified, dying. It's over. But she'll see her own son seated on the throne in glory in the last day. And my friends, in the last day, that's when you too will experience And you'll see the full fruit of your life in the last day. They served the Lord and did His will. What are you going to do? Now let's bow our heads and close our eyes with nobody looking around, nobody talking. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything except those two things. But I want you to listen to me. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you've never intentionally put your faith in Jesus, you need to do it. Jesus came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. He shed his blood on the cross to pay for your sins. And if you put your faith in him as your Savior, not the Savior, but as your Savior, if you'll call upon him, he'll save you. He'll save you. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but your walk for the Lord has not been that good, you've been backsliding a lot, you've, you've, not, you've been neglecting church, you've been neglecting reading scriptures, if, if, if your spiritual life kind of needs a tune-up, right now where you are, you could cry out to God. And tell Him. Tell Him about it. Say, Lord, I've been doing all these things that are wrong. Forgive me. Restore unto me the joy of salvation. God will do it. God will do it. God stands ready to receive you. He's your Father. Now I'm going to pray a short prayer. Then I'm going to stand and sing this final hymn. Father, I pray that 
every person here who is not a Christian, Lord, that you'll open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, they'll believe on Christ. I pray, Lord, for those who are here who are Christian people whose lives have gotten all out of whack. They've gotten other things in between you and them. Sin has lured them away from you. Lord, maybe it's not external sins. Maybe it's just right in, inside of them. Just they're, they're far away from you in the inside. I pray, Lord, that you would... I pray they would see that they should come back to you. That they should cry out to you. And Lord, we know you'll receive them. We know you'll receive every person who comes to you, calling upon you, desiring you. Lord, we pray you'll draw them all. In Christ's holy name, amen.